Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior associate pastor, Dr. John Light. We turn now to God's Word, Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 to 15, but I think I'll back up and start reading at verse 8 so we have the context a bit. So Colossians 2 at verse 8, we heard uh, on verses 8 through 10 last week, and this evening we start at verse 11. So here. Hear the word of God. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. According to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in Him who is the head of all rule and authority. In Him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Lord, please open our eyes and our hearts to your word, to the glories of Christ and what he has done. Speak to us, we pray. Work in our hearts by your Spirit, through Jesus Christ. Amen. One of the common questions of Christians, which reflects the nature of the Christian life and the Christian walk, is the question, how can I be more sanctified? How can I be better transformed into the likeness of Christ, into the holiness which God commands? Because as Christians, we often feel a sense of, of angst that, we, that sin still besets us. And this is clearly one of the primary issues that the Apostle Paul is addressing in this letter to the Colossians who were being led astray by false teaching. And we just piece together from this letter uh, what some of the elements of that teaching um, were. They're belating astray by this false teaching, which apparently offered a a fast track of sorts to holy living and to the Christian life. Uh, But what this fast track really offered was something contrary to the gospel, something that was being added extra to the finished work of Christ, and which was nothing more than typical man-made rules and regulations and other things woven together with that. But from this passage before us, we again see this evening, as we've been looking over the past weeks, that the Bible bases our sanctification not on 
some legalistic rules and regulations or some secret knowledge that, that we have, but on the foundation of Jesus Christ and His mighty work in us as the work of redemptions through His cross and resurrection is applied to us by the Holy Spirit. The foundation of the Word of God revealing the fullness and sufficiency of Jesus Christ. And we'll see clearly when we get to chapter 3 eventually that this foundation of what Jesus Christ has done in us and on our behalf is what enables us and motivates us to more and more put to death specific sin in our lives and to more and more put on Christ-like character and virtue. Last week we saw from verse 10 that we have been given fullness in Christ. We have been filled in Him who is the head of all rule and authority. We don't have to look anywhere else for fullness. It is ours in Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. But this evening, we continue in our text, and we find three additional, I might say, foundational stones accomplished by Christ. We want to look at each one of these. First of all, we see we've been united with Jesus in His death and resurrection. And then secondly, we've been forgiven of all our sins in Christ. And then thirdly, we've been delivered from spiritual bondage by the cross of Christ. Three foundational stones, united with Jesus, forgiven of our sins, and delivered from spiritual bondage. First then, we've been united with Jesus in His death and resurrection, verses 11 through 13. I'm going to read this part again because as we do, you'll see that Paul is using the language of circumcision here to describe this. It's very interesting. It says, in Him, that is in Christ also, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. And then it goes on. We'll talk more about that. It might start at the end of this verse, the circumcision of Christ. What is the circumcision of Christ? Commentators believe that it's referring to Christ's death. Circumcision was the cutting away that represented the removal of sin, and the circumcision of Christ was Christ, the death of Christ, and our participation in that death. Uh, And by means of that death and our union with Him, uh, we were crucified with Him. Um, Our old man was put to death. The old person with our entrenched ways of sin and orientation towards sin. And I think Paul uses this circumcision language here to speak about what Christ has done since these false teachers were apparently insisting that one part of the way to real spirituality was for these Gentiles, these Gentile believers to be circumcised. There was this, there was this um, conglomerate a false teaching that wedded some of the traditional Jewish practices to pagan practices and kind of Gnostic or spiritual wisdom among the Greeks at that time. We're not sure exactly what it all was, but it had to do with these things. So one part of that was that apparently they were offering circumcision as a way to get ahead spiritually, to have um, to grow spiritually. And of course, 
the New Testament church, the apostles, had decided that Gentiles didn't need to be circumcised. And Paul uses this language of circumcision, I I believe, to refute these false teachers and what they were saying. In, in, In a sense, he's saying, Christians, you already have been given in Christ the reality that circumcision points to. Circumcision was the Old Testament sign and seal of the covenant along with the Passover. It it signified uh, identification and entrance into the people of God. So an eight-year-old boy was given this sign, and it symbolized something important. Um, And so he's saying, Christians, you've already uh, been circumcised. In Him you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off of the body of the flesh, talking about the old person, the old man, that Christ has done something decisively in our lives, that we died with Him and we were raised with Him and decisively broke the dominion of sin in our lives. You don't need the Old Testament sign. And he weaves it in with baptism here as well. And he talks about in verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism, which, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. He's using both baptism, the New Testament sign, and circumcision, the Old Testament sign, to point to this great spiritual reality of the believer's union with Jesus Christ. We died with Him. We have been raised with Him. And the verb tenses here are past action with continuing results. We died, and there are continuing results. And notice that this is something that God has done. Look at the end of verse 12 in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Him from the dead. It's, it's the work of God. It's not something that we accomplish somehow in and of ourselves. And so there's this radical inward change in regard to our relationship to sin and to God that forms this first major foundation stone of our sanctification, of our growth in Christ. We might think of Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Or we might turn to Romans 6, which is a further elaboration of this. If you want to, uh, in a sense, read even a a more in-depth discussion of this, Paul says in Romans 6 verse 5, for if we have been united with Him in a death like this, we shall certainly be, be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. And in that text, Paul goes on to say, so then reckon yourself, count yourself dead to sin. There's this active living in light of our union with Jesus Christ. But from this passage before us, we clearly see that the Bible bases our sanctification not on some kind of legalistic rules and regulations. 
Yes, there are commandments Scripture has. Yes, there is the issue of sin. But the Bible bases our sanctification on the foundation of what Jesus Christ has done and who He is and what He's done in us through that mighty work. And we'll see that more in chapter 3. And yet this brings us to think about that in our lives. We've died with Christ. I remember when we lived in New Jersey, we had a mulberry tree in the backyard. That mulberry tree kind of represented sin to me because the mulberries would fall all over and then the kids would track them into the house. It was just like you couldn't get done with those mulberries. And one day I cut a big branch off that tree. I'm not sure why I did that. And I decided I'd cut the branch, which was pretty thick, up into little seats for the kids that they could sit, you know, in the yard back there. And I was astounded that for a year, maybe even two years, those little uh, pieces of mulberry branch kept sprouting forth green shoots. It showed you, you know, that even though that log was cut off and dead, it still had some remaining life. To me, that was a great illustration of the believer and his or her remaining sin. We've died to Christ and we still see the little shoots of sin coming up in our lives, but fundamentally, we're dead to sin. Maybe a better analogy that I like to use is the analogy from the Allies taking of various islands in the Pacific during World War II. When if you, know, if you think about how the, how the Allies, how the United States advanced from island to island, uh, taking it from the enemy, and the Marines would make a landing on the beaches at great cost and then advance and with furious resistance from the enemy, and then finally uh, the command center of the island would be taken, and those beautiful pictures of the American flag being raised after all of that, this vivid, vivid imagery. But then... Even though the island was taken, quotes around that, um, there was the mopping up operation. There was often guerrilla warfare for weeks or months with the enemy hiding out. And uh, maybe you've read that even years, sometimes decades on a few of the islands, there were enemy troops still hiding in those islands, uh, not captured yet. Um, I look at that as an example of Jesus' death and resurrection and our part in that, that Jesus has done a decisive work in the believer's life. He's taken the command center of our lives, so to speak. He's raised His flag of sovereignty over us. We belong to Him. We are willing slaves and servants of Christ, children of God. And He's broken the power of sin, but Christians rightly feel like, has He really broken the power of sin in my life? It feels very strong. Well, there's still the mopping up operation in this lifetime. There are still the guerrilla warfare going on, but the command center belongs to Christ. The island is His. Maybe that's a good illustration to help you think of that as you fight remaining sin. But secondly, in verses 13 and 14, we see that another foundation stone is we, we have been forgiven of all of our sins by the work of Christ. Here we read, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, 
This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. This second foundation stone is obviously closely linked to the first one. In fact, all of these three points are linked together with Jesus' work on the cross by which he accomplished salvation. Verse 13 talks about trespasses. These are our actual sins. And then it also talks about and the uncircumcision of your flesh. Paul is again using circumcision language to describe, to talk about with these Gentiles um, the fact that they came to Christ from this hopeless state, like it talks about in Ephesians 2, that they were without, without hope and without God in the world, that they were not part of God's covenant people. They were separated from the commonwealth of Israel. They were foreigners to the covenants of the promise, the uncircumcision of their flesh. And they weren't seeking God. They didn't know God. They were without hope in this world. And here this brings out, uh, this language brings out the fact that they were dead in terms of their old spiritual nature. But what has God done? You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. There are these three participles in verses 13, 14, and 15, having forgiven, having canceled, having disarmed. They're all similar in the way Paul piles them one on top of the next, and they're all things that Jesus accomplished on the cross. Having forgiven us all of our sins, having canceled out the record of debt, those two both speaking about the forgiveness of our sins. And that God applied this work of Christ to our lives the moment we trust Jesus Christ to save us from our sins. God applies that work of Christ to us. The point is this. Christians have had their bad record canceled. They've had their sins forgiven. This is such an important point. The Bible gives us here this this vivid picture of what Jesus has done for every believer by His substitutionary atonement. This idea of He took this record of debt with its legal demands, and He set it aside, nailing it to the cross. Now, we know from the gospel accounts that when Jesus was crucified, Pilate, the governor, made a sign and put it above Jesus' head, the King of the Jews, and He wrote it in three languages, in Latin, in Greek, and in Aramaic. And we know that the leaders of the Jews came back and said, don't say he was the king of the Jews. Say he said he was the king of the Jews. And Pilate said in reply, what I have written, I have written. Well, this is, in one sense, this is a very unusual sign that he made under the providence of God. But it was typical that a criminal that was crucified would have a sign above his head explaining or naming the crime or crimes which he had done by, uh, by which he was crucified. And you can see, you know, it might have said murderer or treason or something like that. It was typical. And Paul takes this typical practice of crucifixion in this written record, and here he, he ties it in and relates it really to the, the law of God, which apart from Christ's 
serves to condemn each one of us. It's like the first chapters of Romans where Paul is showing that both Jew and Gentile are condemned by the law of God. The Jew have, ha- having the written law of God, the Gentile having the law written on his heart to some degree. Uh, both uh, having this law, and Paul concludes, no one keeps the law. He writes in Romans 3.19, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. This idea of that the record we all have is a bad record. We may be, think we're pretty good relative to other people on this earth. We might say, well, I'm not a Hitler. I haven't murdered anyone. I haven't, you know, but still, have we loved God with all our heart and mind and soul every day of our lives? Have we praised Him with everything that we do? Have we sinned against others? Have we been selfish? The record piles up. And here in Colossians 2.14, Paul says, what Jesus did for that on that cross is that He nailed that terrible, sinful record that all of us have. He nailed it to the cross. He carried that penalty for our sin on the cross. Doesn't it bring to mind some of the lyrics of great hymns that we love. We think of, it is well with my soul in that verse. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross. I think that's referring to Colossians chapter 2. And I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. I want us to hear and remember that the truth of our forgiveness is something, something accomplished once and for all by the cross of Christ. And this is a very blessed truth for believers to hold to. And we must learn to stand by faith on this blessed declaration of Scripture. One of Satan's primary weapons against the Christian is to take our eyes off of Christ and to discourage us with our sin. So we feel like we can't really pray. Uh, We drift. We feel distant from God. It's because of Satan using our sin as a weapon. Even the name Satan means accuser. Revelation 12.10 says he's the accuser of the brethren. Uh, So we must not be surprised at Satan's devices. There's a legendary story about a dream Martin Luther had. And I've tried to track it down a little bit this week. I haven't found where it's from in his writings, but you see it in sermons and so forth that Luther has this dream. And in this dream, Satan has these scrolls of Martin Luther's sin. And he brings this scroll, this long scroll of Martin Luther's sin to him. And Martin Luther says to Satan, is that it? Is that all of my sin? And Satan says, no. And Martin Luther says, go get more of it. And so Satan brings another scroll and unrolls it until finally Satan says, that's it. That's all your sin. And then Martin Luther somehow takes a red pen and writes over it, paid by the blood of Christ. And apparently Luther woke up from that dream, you know, in a cold sweat, somewhat terrified, but standing in Christ. Again, I don't know if Luther really had that dream or not, but it certainly is a good illustration of this, isn't it? That, um, you know, that's what the believer has to do. They have to write over the record paid for by Christ. We can and must stand on the promises of Christ for the forgiveness of our sins.
But this leads us to our final point. We have been delivered from spiritual bondage by the cross of Christ. And I think that this forgiveness and um, this bondage are closely tied together. Uh, Verse 15, and it flows from verse 14, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him or in it. It could be saying Christ disarmed the rulers and authorities by triumphing over them in the cross. I really like that translation better. Or it can read, in Him, God disarmed the rulers and authority and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. They, they really mean the same thing. There's no real difference in the sense. And this is the third foundation stone of what Jesus has done for us in the cross and resurrection. This amazing spiritual reality that in the shame and the ignominy of the cross, Jesus was triumphing over sin and over death and over hell and over all evil rulers and authorities and powers and principalities, including Satan himself, by the humility and death on a cross. It's ironic, isn't it, that it says that He put them to open shame. Where was the shame on the cross? Everyone around Jesus, the whole world looked at the cross as about the most shameful thing you could experience. So, Jesus bore our shame, but we're told here that at the same time, Jesus was shaming, putting the evil principalities and powers to open shame in the cross. In actuality, He was utterly defeating the evil powers of this world. And these Colossian believers had come out of paganism. They knew something of the power and presence of evil spirits. And now these false teachers were presenting to them a false theology that must have had something to do with levels of angels and these kinds of things, and probably how to gain power and fight evil spiritual forces. And Paul has Paul is basically saying, don't believe that. Stand on the death and resurrection of Jesus. Dwell near the cross. Keep looking to Jesus Christ. He's reminding them, Christ triumphed over these evil forces once and for all. Yes, there is a spiritual warfare. Satan prowls like a roaring lion, Peter tells us. But our battle does not call for some kind of secret knowledge Our battle has been won in Jesus Christ. And our warfare is take up the shield of faith by which you can quench all the fiery darts of the evil one. Take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Take the whole armor of God. And in this verse, Paul uses the picture, the ancient picture of a triumphal procession through the streets in celebration of a military victory. And uh, one commentator quotes at length from the ancient writer Plutarch to to give you a feel for what these ancient uh, triumphal processions were like. The description in Plutarch is the three-day triumph, who is which is given uh, in Rome to the Roman general Aemilius Paulus upon his return from capturing Macedonia, and it tells us that great scaffolds were. A, erected in Rome and in the Forum and along all the streets of Rome for spectators to to view all of this. 
And all of Rome turned out in festive white clothing for this. And on the first day, 259 chariots displayed in procession the statues from Macedonia, the pictures, the colossal images taken from the enemy. On the second day, innumerable wagons bore the armor of the Macedonians. And Plutarch says at one point, all these arms were fastened together with just so much looseness that they struck against one another as they were drawn along and made a harsh and alarming noise so that even as spoils of a conquered enemy, they would not be held without dread. So all their armor and all the swords and shields and everything went by. Following the wagons came 3,000 carrying the enemy's silver in 750 vessels, followed by more treasure. Then on the third and final day came the captives, preceded by 120 sacrificial oxen with their horns gilded and their heads adorned with ribbons and garlands. And next, Macedonian gold, then the captured king's chariot, his crown, and his armor. Then came the king's servants, weeping with hands outstretched, begging the crowds for mercy. Next came his children, then King Perseus himself, clad entirely in black, followed by endless prisoners. You get a sense for this, was It's bigger than a college football game day. And then finally, the victorious general, seated on the chariot, magnificently adorned, dressed in a robe of purple interwoven with gold, and holding a laurel branch in his right hand. All the army in like manner with boughs of laurel in their hands, divided into their bands and companies, followed the chariot of their commander, some singing verses according to the usual custom songs of triumph and the praise of Emilius's deeds. And Paul writes, Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in the cross. What a beautiful picture that is. Well, two words of application. One, your salvation, your sanctification, your future hope, your glorification, all are rooted in Christ. All are built upon the foundation of Christ. We must not move off that foundation. The beginning part of this section in verse 6 says, Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Don't stray from this foundation glory in this foundation, glory in the cross of Christ. This is a constant fight of faith, and we need to encourage one another. We need to be real about this. There are a thousand different ways the world is always tempting us and speaking to us so that we look at the world and we look at our lives from a worldly perspective. And where does a worldly perspective lead? Well, maybe to despair we, so much, we see so much evil and wrong and suffering that we despair. We don't look at this world in light of what Jesus Christ has done. Or maybe to the temptation of sinful pleasure and comfort, get whatever pleasure you can get, kind of isolate yourself from the world. Or maybe to cynicism, you begin to be cynical about everything, you judge everyone and are critical of everything and everyone, and you believe nothing. Those are just some of the ways that we can stray from the foundation that is in Christ. But the second point of application is, have you received the finished work of Christ 
on your behalf. It's through faith in the powerful working of God. It's as you receive Jesus Christ the Lord, so walk in Him. It's by faith, giving Him your life. There are many voices in this world telling you many things, just as these Colossians heard many voices around them telling them many things. What do you believe? Whom do you believe? And it really comes down to this. Did Jesus Christ rise again from the dead? It really comes down to this. If He did, then you need to put your faith in Him. And the evidence is overwhelming and incontrovertible. The Word of God tells us clearly there is no other historical explanation. There is no other explanation for the millions of lives that Jesus Christ has transformed. Jesus Christ is risen, and He calls each one of us to trust in Him, to give Him our lives. It is not enough to know about Christ. You must come to know Him and trust Him, to put your faith in Him trusting that the record of your sin was nailed to his cross, and you may be able to say, it is well with my soul. Amen. Father, thank you for this astounding picture we have of what you have done for us in Jesus Christ. Lord, we take it to heart. We pray you would build us up in this knowledge this day this week, that we would walk with Jesus Christ, that we would be trusting in you, that we would be rejoicing in you with thanksgiving, that we would be looking to you for all strength, for all fullness, for all forgiveness of our sin that clings to us, for all hope of tomorrow and the next day and the rest of our lives and in the life to come, Lord. Let our heart be fixed on Jesus Christ, the great captain of our souls, the one who has leads us in triumphal procession, we, his willing captives, in his train, Lord, we thank you, we come gladly. We say, blessed be the name of the Lord, Hosanna to the King. We ask all this in his name and his glory. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.